Hi, everyone, and welcome to the No Low Ballers podcast. I'm your host, Logan Medish of High Caliber History. I'm joined around the table today with Alan from GunBroker.com, and we have Vince from Smith & Wesson, and we have Mike from, well, Mike is from Mike. He's with the Smith & Wesson Historical Foundation and the Smith & Wesson Collectors Association. Um, all around good dudes. We got a, a great episode, uh, great stuff. We're talking uh, later Smith and Wesson history, uh, and we're going to be talking about uh, the future of the company uh, as things go on because there's some some big interesting things moving and shaking with them uh, in in my state in Tennessee. Yeah, so, couple. Um, yeah, just a couple things going on there. Yeah, but but first we'll we'll go back and and we'll talk uh, about an, an interesting time. Uh, in, in the company's history in the early 20th century when we're dealing with ammunition innovations and, you know, iconic cartridges today, such as the 357 Magnum and the 44 Magnum, um, that Smith really came out swinging while working on those designs. And so, Mike, can, can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, Smith's role in, in early cartridge development? Absolutely. I mean... You know, the 38 Special, the 44 Smith & Wesson, the 44 Magnum, the 357 Magnum. I mean, those all came out of Smith & Wesson. Um, we actually, in the in the Historical Foundation, we have a, a great letter from D.B. Wesson that's actually talking about the development of the 357 and talking about being able to disable a moving vehicle. Of course, this was in the 1930s during Prohibition, and mm -hmm. people were doing bad things with more powerful cars. So being able to penetrate an engine block all of a sudden became a became a thing for law enforcement and that was uh, that was part of what precipitated the development of the 357 that's really cool you know especially because you hear people joking about you know oh I, you know that round's so powerful i can put it right through an engine block and here's here's db wesson going well actually <laughs> <laughs> yeah you, you, yours can't <laughs> right yeah be like uh, then then you need to step your game up and and, and get a better cartridge you know but the, really i would say for you know, most of the 20th century if, and into the 21st. I mean, there's no more iconic round than a 357 Magnum. I mean, it's just... It's the cartridge all the others have been measured against for years. I mean, especially yeah. with law enforcement. Yeah. yeah. You know, we've been trying to create an auto-loading round that replicates that classic, you know, 125-grain load for years and yeah. gotten close. But at the end of the day, mm -hmm. the original's still the king. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there's so much history, uh, you know, with ammunition development anyway. I mean, we talked in our previous episode with Smith doing early stuff, you know, with, with their ammunition as well. And so it, it just works perfectly. It's totally on brand, right, with Smith & Wesson uh, to be going through and doing things um, like that with the ammunition development. Yeah, it's uh, like we lean on ammo partners a lot to drive uh, a lot of the innovation in the industry. You know, there's there's so much that we can do with a gun, but obviously it has to shoot. And so, um, you know, we see a lot of inspiration and we get that spark from from a lot of our uh, ammo partners today. You know, 30 Super Carry was one that was most recent. Yep. Um, and that was federal approaching us and saying, hey, we've got this cool round that's supposed to, you know, have the performance in nine millimeter, but smaller so we can fit more rounds into a gun. Are you guys interested in developing a product around that? And we said, absolutely. You yeah. know, so uh, not always us approaching people, um, 
But, I mean, we're, we're happy to jump in when we can. Well, I think Smith has also been really good over the years of helping solve problems. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we knew after the Miami episode, um, you know, there was questions about the efficacy of 9mm or certainly the older Volvers. 10mm um, was the answer for everyone, but 10mm obviously had its drawbacks as well. So there was Smith & Wesson ready to go with an answer in the 40 Smith & Wesson. Yeah. And it's a little on the outs these days, but as we, I think we talked in the last episode, it's, there's really nothing wrong with the round. It's still a very good round. No, sure. and they're so cyclical. I mean, you know, something can fall out of favor and then give it a couple of years and it's, it's, people are asking for it. I think 10 is a, is a prime example for Absolutely. that, yeah. you know. There mm-hmm. are more companies making guns in 10 now than there probably ever have been. For, for years, I worked with, a, with another manufacturer, and every time we would launch a new handgun, within the first three Facebook posts would always be, oh, when are you going to do it in 10 millimeter? Yeah. yeah. Became our running joke. Yeah. So when they did come out with a 10, their, their pistol product boss calls me and says, all right, here's our, here's our lineup coming for shot, and here's a, uh, uh, a 10 millimeter. Nah, no, 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 really. It took him a good five, ten minutes to convince me they were really doing it. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I think I, I've been with Smith for almost six years, and so I've been there at the the early uh, use of our social media tools, and I've seen all those 10-millimeter comments, and I almost single-handedly DM'd every single person on there <laughs> when we came out with that M&P 10 to tell them to go buy it finally. Right. So. <laughs> nice. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned the 30 Super Carry, and uh, it was, uh, I'm glad you brought it up because I was going to bring it up. Uh, last fall, I was up at Federal with the guys from Go Wild because uh, Federal was doing their 100th anniversary, and they took me into the gun room. And one of the things they had there uh, is the MP Shield that you guys did in 30 Super Carry, and it was like the, the prototype tool room gun if you will you know and they had that uh and that was cool because that's that is truly modern gun history yeah you know and so that was a neat piece to to see yeah and and sometimes it's the other way around like the 500 for example was something that was um spawned on our side of the fence but and it was really just because we could why not you know it's uh to say you've got the most powerful handgun uh in manufacturing that's a pretty good checkbox on the smith side so um, yeah, we have some fun with it too. It's not just the ammo guys coming, right. coming at us. Yeah, a lot of times when the in- engineers come with something they can do, you not always the best plan, but sometimes <laughs> they hit it right on the head. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We can do this. Hey, and we should do this. Right. Yeah, just, think, be, just because you can fit a 50 BMG in a flare gun doesn't mean you should do it. You know? I swear our engineers have like a secret drawer where we just <laughs> <laughs> stuff all these prototypes away. <laughs> they never see the light of day, unfortunately. But That's funny. Well, you know, we were talking about design development and things that don't see the light of day. We'll talk about something that, that did see the light of day uh, at, at an interesting kind of time period. Uh, Mike, we've got a Smith & Wesson Model 39 here with us. Um, so tell us what, what drives the introduction of the 39 and, and when and what, what's going on with this gun? Sure. So the Model 39 was, um, so Smith & Wesson had kind of a strange beginning with, uh, with autoloaders. There was the model of 1913, um, which was a very different gun than this. And honestly, that, that one, that was a bit of a squib load for, for yes. Smith & Wesson. Um, they they came out with their own caliber. It was uh, it was the thirty five Smith and Wesson, which was almost the same as the thirty two um, ACP, but it wasn't quite the same. <laughs> um, but ballistically, it was pretty similar. But the problem was the thirty two ACP was already established, mm-hmm. um, and the thirty five went nowhere. So the model of model of nineteen thirteen was actually an interesting gun, um, but they, they just didn't get it right with the ammunition, and it ended up kind of dying a uh, a, a, a sort of unnoble death. 
Um, and it was a good many years before Smith & Wesson produced another autoloader, but they really came out of the gate strong. What they developed was the Model 39, and this was actually the first American 9mm pistol. Um, single action, double action. So it was sort of built on the 1911 architecture. The the, the takedown pin works very much like a, like a 1911, mm -hmm. um, but there definitely were some differences. Um, and obviously one of them was the single action, double action mechanism. Uh, there was also the decocker and the safety lever on the slide. So they really got it right with the Model 39. Um, this went into military trials fairly quickly. Um, there was you know interest in it for obvious reasons. This was then followed up by the by the Model 59, which of course was the double stack version. This was a uh, this was a single stack nine millimeter. The 59 was the double stack. That's eight rounds in that. Yeah, one, I right? believe this is eight plus one, uh, and then the 59 was. Mm, someone more, tell us in the comments. Yeah, more than <laughs> it was more than eight. More Having, than eight. <laughs> Twelve or it, thirteen. Uh, yeah. Was, yeah. Actually, thirteen sounds right-ish. It was, it was something in that range. But, digits. but that was really that was really the start of the the kind of nine millimeter wonder guns was the 39 and the 59 with the with the double stack um and then of course these um you know these morphed into the the third gen guns which um which are becoming very collectible now uh there's still a lot of interest in those so this is really the model of 1913 was technically where the autoloaders began but really the 39 and the 59 mm -hmm. um were, were where uh, where, where the real critical mass for Smith and Wesson began in the uh, in the auto loading pistols. Um, so even though it didn't get officially adopted, it, it does have some military history in uh, in that it gets used in a suppressed version um, in more of a clandestine thing. It's called the Hush Puppy, um, and so obviously it, it, you're putting a suppressor on the end of it, but there's also a slide lock yep. um, so that after you fire the cartridge, you don't have the noise of the cycling of the slide. It's not spitting out brass, you know, so it, I mean, so it, it takes the, the, the innovation of a double stack semi-automatic pistol and turns it into a single shot. Um, <laughs> but it was stupid quiet. But it yeah. was stupid quiet. Special yep. forces used them for, you know, taking out sentries in the Vietnam era, you know, taking out guard dogs, taking out lights, cameras. I mean, things that you could do with without that slide cycle, because again, there is an amount of gas that comes out during that. Yep. Right. You know, without that, it was a, a remarkably quiet, you know, for a suppressed gunshot, you know, it's still not movie quiet, but it's, it, it is one of the more quiet platforms put together right. and hush puppies kind of become now a bit of a ubiquitous generic term for yes. know, for any of those type guns but that this is where it started yeah that yep. was yeah and i think the military designation for that was the mark 22 i i think that again sounds right if not again someone yeah. will tell us in the comments how wrong we are about everything we yeah. we we're used to that you know makarov <laughs> we learned makarov. There we go. <laughs> in the previous episode we were saying makarov uh macaroni uh, macaroni uh, yeah. macarena yeah uh, <laughs> Someone once described in 39 to me in a way that I thought made a ton of sense. It's kind of the best elements of the 1911 and the best elements of the high power. Yeah. Kind of brought mm -hmm. together with, with a few upgrades here and there. Yeah. And I, I mean, I love the high power, but I love shooting the Model 39. I, I think it's just, it's a better pistol to shoot than and, the high power. And, so. and let's so take the difference between the 39 and the 59. Do you have a preference between those, Mike? I actually like the 39. Yeah. I, I like that slender grip. It just, it, okay. it fits my hand well. I think from an engineering perspective, they're both superb guns. They both shoot really well, but the the thirty nine just it just fits. Mm -hmm. I remember the I still remember the first time I took a thirty nine in my hand, and it was just like, oh wow, this this feels right. It, yeah. it points very naturally. It's uh, everything's just where it should be. 
Interesting. Yeah, I mean, they're they're beautiful guns. There's they they they're graceful in yeah. a way, mm-hmm. you know, um, in, in a way that you don't necessarily see in a lot of modern semi-auto pistols, right? I mean, for so much of the design, it's it's utility uh, over aesthetics, you know. But that's I mean, that's a beautiful blued gun, yeah. um, and it's it, it's almost a shame that the military didn't take it up because that would be interesting to see if the military had adopted the 39 would they end up, have ended up going with the Beretta M9 or would you know would that have still been in service until we went to the M17 and you know it's just one of those histories mm-hmm. what ifs yeah. that we'll never know uh, but i mean you raise a great point we were talking about this earlier is that this and especially the third gen guns are really kind of the last of the kind of the craftsmanship the a little bit of the um beauty of it you know after this right. i think it's kind of you know apologies but kind of soulless and, and polymer and plastic fantastic well but but very utilitarian it's it's a tool where this still feels a little bit like a craftsman made it yeah, yeah. absolutely and that lends to the collectability of these guns i mean this you know this is a beautiful example still in the box with the vapor paper you know i mean that's that is a collectible piece, and you know, most of the time when people think about collectible Smith and Wessons, they focus on the revolvers, right? I mean, because that's yeah. been Smith's bread mm-hmm. and butter for 150 years. But, but there is a whole subgenre of Smith and Wesson collectors that are into the semi-autos, and and Alan, you mentioned, you know, the the third gen stuff. I mean, those are are seeing a resurgence uh, in the prices that those are bringing on the collector market. And I know we see guys Mike, in the Smith & Wesson forums talking about the third-gen oh, yeah. guns. And that's mm-hmm. – even 10 years ago, yeah. we, we weren't seeing guys talking about those guns in a serious collector manner. No. Um, a but, decade ago, they were on the surplus market. Yeah. Right. You know, they were kind of the last um, uh, auto loaders that a lot of law enforcement had adopted before going striker fire. So those inventories were moving out of the markets, and they were, you know, yeah. dirt cheap. Yeah. Yeah, and and that is just not the case anymore. You know, we're I mean, sure you can find some sleeper deals here and there uh, in in auctions on Gumburger, but d- invariably the prices on those guns have have gone up. And and it's interesting because you know we we tend to think about it, oh well you know they were they were products of the eighties. You know it was just yesterday. You know you're like shit that was forty <laughs> years ago. I mean yeah. the eighties you know? are back. We're seeing it in the fashion. We're seeing it in music. We're seeing it in movies. We're seeing it in, in firearms as well. I mean, you know, I'm talking about the 5906, kind of a classic yeah. third-gen yeah. gun. Um, I've got a couple at home that, again, they were state patrol trade-ins. They were surplus guns. I think we paid 250 for them. Wow. Um, wow. Yep. Yeah. Now wow. I took a look on, on Gun Broker um, uh, this morning. Uh, that basic gun, nothing special, a couple of magazines, um, maybe a box, maybe not, you know, a thousand dollars is where they're, wow. they're moving. If you're lucky enough to have something, the performance center is tuned up, mm-hmm. which that's something we haven't talked really about at all. Smith's performance center, um, $2,500. Yeah. Wow. So they went crazy. from, you know, in a, in a decade <laughs> going from, you know, surplus that you bought just cause it was kind of there and interesting to, you know, kind of a, kind of a hot collectible item right now. Yeah. yeah. Even on the collector side, I mean, you see that spike, but I think we've even seen it just for demand for products in the new space, but to reintroduce a lot of these into into manufacturing. And um, so it's not just there. I think 
the industry as a whole has been kind of hit with that nostalgia bump and we've seen it roll into almost that 80s scene uh mm-hmm. so products that we've we've made back then people are asking for us to reintroduce them and stuff so it, we're seeing it across the spectrum of people it's it's the people who are super intimate to when we first developed those products and now it's a new generation of gun owners who are just coming into the space and they're like, wow, that looks really cool. And right. they appreciate kind of the manufacturing and the craftsmanship behind those products. And it's different than what's available today. And, you know, I don't want to speak ill, but you walk into a gun store and it's a sea of black polymer products. And yep. I think a lot of people are saying, hey, give me something a little bit different now. Yep. Um, exactly. You know, I've got an EDC, I've got a home defense. Now let me actually get into uh a little bit of a different taste in products and stuff. Right. Something that I'm find something like that's looking at. Too. Yeah, something makes me stand out a little bit at the range where it's not the same thing everybody's got. Right. And I think and I think the other thing worth mentioning is, I mean, you can take some of these auto-loading pistols from the 60s and 70s and still do good work with them. Mm-hmm. You know, whether Absolutely. you're target shooting or self-defense or whatever, I mean, there's still, you know, I've run all sorts of 9mm ammo through that, and it, it just eats everything. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, there's something, it's different. It's, it's uh, yeah. a different feeling when you're holding a gun like that versus you know yeah. like a 2.0 or something yeah it's and i love true. and i love my new pistols i love my striker fires but mm-hmm. uh sometimes i'm in the mood for that yeah, so. yeah. there's a place at the table for them all yeah. you know it's just they're different the different courses of the meal yeah. right exactly. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. keep buying just keep buying yes <laughs> well you guys need people to keep buying because smith and wesson is uh, is right on the precipice of something uh, that is really really special um, that that has been a couple years in the making now, yeah. um, and and for those that don't know, Smith and Wesson made a big departure after a hundred and almost hundred and sixty years in Springfield, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. They have relocated to Maryville, Tennessee. Yeah, um, brand new factory there. Vince, talk to us about what's going on with the move and what's coming next. Yeah, it wasn't uh, was not an easy decision by the leadership team for sure um but a lot went into it and i think you know during the decision making process there was a a ton of different candidates and um the way they vetted them was looking out for employees and looking out for the future of the company so Mm -hmm. you know what kind of a talent pool is available for the people that we can pull from and start to build kind of the culture in smith and wesson and foster you know more innovation and and just a better fit for the the company as a whole what state would be um, supportive of the Second Amendment? I mean, sure. that's where we're steadfast in in our position to to remain true to the Second Amendment. So, Tennessee is a is a state that's basically uh, given constitutional carry and and super uh, a Second Amendment sanctuary state. So, um, for us, it's been uh, super welcoming. We're mm-hmm. we're set to open. Uh, grand opening party is October 7th. Um, That's just the Saturday. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's it's uh, it's pretty wild. I mean, it's going to be exciting. I think uh, when we sold the tickets, we sold out um, almost within a day. Wow. Uh, wow. Yeah, it was – it meant that's just the response from the community uh, sure. and the people that uh, are so happy to, to see Smith & Wesson as part of that. And, Absolutely. Um, so for us, we've got a facility that's going to have our distribution center out of it. Uh, we have a plastics company that's going to come in-house. Um, assembly will be there. Um, and then we've got our front office. So um, we still have some of the 
the manufacturing processes like for revolver and 1911s those are going to remain in springfield Mm -hmm. um part of that is is the skilled labor uh around those products sure i mean you've got uh people who have generations within their family who have been uh, working on revolvers at Smith and Wesson. That's right. the history there. It's an institutional knowledge. Yeah. It's just something about the firearms industry that I, I see that at every manufacturer that yep. there's two, yeah. three, four generations on the line out there in some cases. Yeah. It's pretty impressive that, you know, and that's it. I mean, Smith and Wesson's meant a lot to, to Massachusetts. I don't want to sure. devalue that in any uh, respect, but, um, you know, we're super happy for what Tennessee's going to bring for us. And, uh, I think we're set to, to start actually assembling products at the end of October. Okay. Uh, so those are when the the maiden Maryville, Tennessee will be found on the slides. And, and uh, so that'll be pretty exciting for anybody looking to grab those. There's going to be a, be a new collector's item. Yeah. 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 So what I, you're saying, Vince, is uh, I get to come to the factory <laughs> and put my own slide <laughs> right, and take yeah. it right off the yeah. line with and me, we'll right? We'll go right into engraving. You can get your name on yeah. it. Yeah. No, I like sounds it. Great. Vince thinks I'm joking, but I'm going <laughs> to show up. Yeah. Knock on the door and be like, Fred. <laughs> All right. So just do me a favor and misspell his name on the slide. Yeah. Just because. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> now, Alfred, why would you do something like that? <laughs> but, you know, Vince, Vince mentioned something I want to come back to. Um, I mean, I've walked the factory floor and seen the, the revolver manufacturing and the finishing. And it's actually amazing how hard it is to finish a modern revolver. Mm-hmm. And those guys really work their way up into that position. I mean, you don't you don't just come in off the street and, uh, sure. you know, start polishing a revolver. I mean, that's a position that you spend a lot of time working your way yeah. up into. And it's it was really remarkable and really eye-opening to, uh, to, to see how much work goes into that. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's skilled. And, I mean, it's going to be a rolling phase for us. We're not just going to all of a sudden one yeah. day pick up all of our assembly sure. processes in, right. in Maryville. So it's a phased approach. Um but you know, I think uh, I think you know, paying homage to some of the heritage in Springfield and what that means to us as a company. But then obviously embracing a lot of Tennessee is is uh, is great. And I can say that the the company and you know we've we've got some new hires on the team that we've got there. Uh, anecdotally, I had a position open in in Springfield once upon a time. I think I had about ten applicants for it, and then we had a. a more entry-level position available in Tennessee, and I think we had over 500 within, like, the first week. So that's wow. the that's yeah. how welcoming they are to our Absolutely. industry in particular. Well, Tennessee um, is the patron state of shooting stuff, so. <laughs> yeah. As a resident of Tennessee, I can attest to that, you yeah. know. And, and you know, I think we talked about this last night at dinner. Uh, you know, you were saying in Massachusetts, the culture is, you know, all, I work for a sporting goods manufacturer, you know, because you're not sure how things are going to go politically. But, you know, down in Tennessee, I work for Smith & Wesson, you yeah. know. Like, we like shooting stuff. Actually, yeah. a friend of mine has a really good way of putting that. She, uh, What she says is when you're in the gun industry, it's a bit like pornography almost. Like, it's legal, but you, you're never quite sure how to introduce that into conversation. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. I just go for it, you know. Like, uh, people <laughs> just, ask me just what Just jump I, in head first. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. do. Yeah. I, just because I don't give a shit, you know. <laughs> 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 I'm yeah. a company of one. I yeah. don't have to worry about <laughs> marketing and HR stuff and no, things like that. I think, know? like, if if you're a company, you want people to be proud of where they work. And Absolutely. you want them to, to enjoy it and be able to have the products, shoot them, enjoy them, and all the things that come with working from Smith & Wesson. And I think... At Tennessee, not only were we getting uh, a ton of great candidates for positions, 
it's in a culture and a space where it, they can be proud to work there. Like it's almost uh, just, <laughs> it's dangerous to wear branded clothing around Tennessee and Maryville because I, I'm subject to get stopped and talked to for like <laughs> 30 minutes, you know, which is a great excuse if I'm out in the wild and my wife's like, where are you? And I was like, oh, sorry, somebody got a hold of me and right. was talking yeah. my ear off. So I, yeah. I like my M&P 2.0, <laughs> but if you need to make one in a 44 Magnum. Yeah, right. yeah. Hey, we're open to suggestions. So you guys got some insights and some new products? I'll take those ideas. Right. Put them in the comments section. We'll make sure to, get, we'll yep. make sure to get them to Vince, no yeah. matter how ridiculous they are, you know. Yeah. They'll end up in that drawer in engineering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With all the weird and wacky, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. So how, how big is the new factory there? It's over 600,000 square feet. I think it's 625. Um and that's going to be, you know, the back end and then the front office, too. Um, and how does that compare to what is up in Massachusetts? Uh, uh, I'm not 100% sure on the square footage of our mass one, but I can just say out of uh, just the efficiency of the build is going to help us in a lot of in mm-hmm. a lot of senses. It's it, If you take an aerial view of the mass uh, facility, it's an H. I think that was designed during the the World War so that if one spot got hit, they could quarantine that zone and then continue to manufacture. But it's not great when we're trying to be efficient. Uh, We want that big open box, uh, open floor plan where we can move whatever we got to move at any given time and make sure that uh, things are just moving real, real fast. So um, just state-of-the-art in terms of you know the operations side and what we're putting into that which is great because it's going to help us in the long run and ultimately uh, the goal is just to you know we've been here for a long time we want to be here for a long time so um, let's make it easier on ourselves and and let's uh, let's create some really cool products and and pump those out yeah i don't think it can be overestimated the benefit of having a space designed for your process as opposed to trying to cram your process into an old space that you're modernizing or just into a new space to you know you've bought someone's old factory or something being able to go in and you know have your design engineers go all right this is the this is our product flow this is where we need the materials coming in this is where we need the test ranges this is where we need you know our um, qa area Having that designed for that flow is going to be such a massive step up from your efficiency. It's it's going to be really fun to watch. Yeah, it's a huge consolidation too. Like you know, we've got a plastics company, but right now, it, it, you know, it's in Connecticut, but we've moved it to Massachusetts to be under one roof. And you know, we've got our distribution center that that was in Missouri, and now we've moved it under one roof. So right. just even having access to all the arms that we have, and it's all in one building, it's going to help uh, across the board. So just makes for a, a much more cohesive solid you know product in the end really. yeah i mean because yeah. that's that's the end goal right? yeah like ultimately you want to make all these chess moves to have better products at the end of the day sure and just make you know cooler things and be innovative i think you know mike's been awesome about going through the history of smith and wesson and and there was a ton of innovation there Absolutely. Um, and, you know, we've gone through uh, different periods and, you know, um, with our M&P line, you know, a little bit of a fast follower mentality for, for lack of a better term. And just, mm-hmm. you know, seeing what's around us and we can do that and make it better was a, one of the approaches of our old leadership team. Um, but, you know, a couple of years ago, we split from AOB. We're back, pure play, Smith & Wesson, firearms are our focus. That's us as a brand. 
Um, and we've said, okay, let's lean back into innovation. That was the roots of Smith & Wesson, so let's embrace that. And let's, uh, so hopefully what stems from that is some really, really cool products moving forward from, from Smith & Wesson. Awesome. Yeah, I, I know, we, you know, like I said, as a resident of Tennessee, we're really excited to have you there. And I know from seeing the social media comments, everyone's excited to have you there. So, so f- from one Tennessee into another, welcome to Tennessee. We're glad to have you guys. Congratulations on, on the grand opening that's coming up uh, in, in a couple days now. I know it's going to be an absolute blast. Um, really looking forward to seeing Maryville on, on slides uh, on the guns. And, uh, you know, so everybody go to go to gunbroker.com and, and grab your ones that are still marked Springfield Mass before <laughs> yeah. you can't, you yeah. know. Um, so we, we appreciate you guys uh, all sitting around the table. Uh, Alan, Vince, Mike, uh, appreciate you guys being here and, and talking to us about the, the future uh, of Smith & Wesson. It's, it's an exciting time and looking forward to another 160 years. Um, and, and we appreciate all of you tuning in, uh, listening to the show, watching the show. If you're not subscribed on your favorite platform, please do that now. Uh, it would mean the world to us. Leave us some, some comments and reviews. Uh, that also means a great deal to us. We appreciate you being here, uh, and hopefully you enjoy the show as much as we do. Uh, so from all of us at No Low Ballers, thanks for tuning in, and we will see you right here on the next episode.